This is VLX number 117, Is It Lawful to Divorce? We are in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. VLX stands for Video Lexu Divina, the only patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. God give you his peace and omni patris spiritu santi. Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine Patris Efidi, Spiritus Santi. Amen. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Okay, intense day today on doctrine, but quick public service announcement. You know, I promote my Apple podcasts a lot, but some of you probably watch these videos and occasionally want the capability of audio only on the go on your Android smartphones. If that's the case, remember you can get the audio only for all of these podcasts on the go for free on your Android too, not just your Apple. So some of these Android apps in which I'm pretty sure you'll find the option to subscribe to Padre Peregrino is Anchor, CastBox, Dogcatcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Spotify. Okay, so today's going to be a Bible study on marriage without anything, unfortunately, for you in the imaginative way. But like I always say, You should be good enough at this by now that you can take the study on the go and bring it to 15 minutes of silent prayer, whether you do the apophatic or cataphatic method, or if you just like this Bible study on the go without applying it to mental prayer, that's fine. Thanks for listening. Just make sure you get some mental prayer maybe another time in the day. So we have this important line from Matthew 19 that affects millions of American Catholics today. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery... Or in the Douay Rhymes, we heard in Matthew 19.9, And I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and he that shall marry her that is put away committeth adultery. Now, all through seminary, I tried to apply that exception of adultery to declarations of nullity, which are usually given for lack of discretion before getting married. But it turns out the church fathers, they weren't actually talking about annulments because Christ wasn't talking about annulments. Now, I'm not saying there's no valid declarations of nullity today. I'm just saying the church fathers and the popes and the saints, conglomerated by Father Lapide, as we're going to see, have absolutely no reference to annulments with this line. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. That exception. Or what we heard in the Dewey Rhymes Bible. And I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and he that shall marry her that is put away committeth adultery. What we're going to see is that Christ meant anytime you remarry, it's adultery. You can leave your spouse if that spouse was unfaithful. We're going to see really why you probably shouldn't. 
but you're still not allowed to get remarried in that one tiny exception. Isn't that amazing? I had no idea about this until reading the Church Fathers today because I had been trying to pigeonhole Matthew 19 into the canon law section of my brain on annulments. So immorality or fornication, those are the two translations. But the word in Greek is porneia. Very interesting that the word in Greek is porneia. But that just includes uh, all sexual immorality. So let me give you a summary of today. And even this summary probably shouldn't be taken out of context. But if I just had to put everything into about 70 words, it goes like this. Christ asserted to the apostles who would spread Catholic marriage across the globe and also to the Pharisees that they listening to him looking for loopholes on remarriage that in certain circumstances, a married person could carefully discern departure from one spouse when the other was provably guilty of unfaithfulness, and the early church added physical and psychological safety or salvation to this, then you may discern departure from your spouse, but you still can't remarry. Now, I'm going to explain a little bit later from my friend Layla Miller's books why you really shouldn't even take off if that person was unfaithful, even though it's already a given from the New Testament, you can't remarry, as we're going to prove also, um, taking off is a bad idea because it's just going to really harm the psychological and sociological and even theological lives of the kids. These aren't my words. This comes from a book of her interviews called Primal Loss with Adult Survivors of Divorce. Um, so what you're going to hear me say uh, a little bit later, taken loosely from the words of Lapides, you can break the bed, but you can't break the bond. Even if you got to take off because someone's crazy or unfaithful, you can never get remarried because that bond can never be remade. But really, the bed should also be rehabilitated too because of the sake of the kids. We're going to talk about that later. Now remember, annulments are a relatively new thing, at least at this frequency. Of course, we've all read of kings and queens in the Middle Ages getting annulments. You know, Henry VIII wanting the Pope to renege on his marriage and then later reneging on the reneging. But you do have to realize that towards the end of Vatican II in 1968, there were 338 annulments in the United States. Notice what I just said. Not 338,000. There were 338 total annulments granted in 1968 to American Catholics. 30 years later, in 1998, there were 50,498 annulments granted to American Catholics. So that was 338 in 1969 and 50,000 in 1998. Now, I had heard also that there was about three a year at the turn of the century, you know, around the year 1900. Three total annulments granted worldwide in 1900, and these were granted by the Vatican. I think our canon lawyer taught us that in seminary. I might be wrong about this one, but if anyone could get me the stats on that, please put it in the comments below if you're on YouTube or Rumble. But anyway, from these numbers, even if you disagree with me on how infrequent annulments should be even today... You can understand why Father Lapide in the 16th century was not going in that direction. They just didn't exist. Neither were the church fathers. They, didn't, they, they probably rarely, if ever, had any annulments in the early church. And if we believe the traditional magisterium as the number one interpreter of Christ, neither was Christ himself going in that direction in Matthew 19.9, as we're going to prove from the church fathers in a minute. Also, as I said, to keep in mind, the church allows one spouse to leave the other if he or she is physically or psychologically dangerous. But even that addition, Lapide doesn't get into, and you have to realize how destructive separation will be to your kids psychologically and theologically when they grow up, as you can read in Layla Miller's book, again, that I highly recommend to you, Primal Loss, Interviews with Adult Survivors of Divorce, 
from their childhood and a new one with hope for couples struggling but not divorced yet or annulled yet or whatever you want to call it called impossible marriages redeemed so look don't shoot the messenger today i'm just going to read you father lapide quoting the fathers and the saints to show what christ really meant in matthew 19 and one last quick note before we jump into the church fathers i do want to say young people you really should be very careful who you marry you may want to go back and read my blog called courting advice to young catholics or my podcast and video called Dating Advice to Young Catholics. They're pretty much the same thing. The point is this, you only got one shot at this, so please choose extremely wisely who you marry since you don't want to one day be figuring out if the church will give you a declaration of nullity, aka an annulment. So what we're going to hear from the fathers today admittedly doesn't sound like modern canon law on annulments. And I've studied this stuff. I had canon law in classes. Uh, I know that this doesn't sound like what I've studied. I was honestly shocked today at Father Lapide's reading, so let's jump right into it. In verse 3, the Bible says, And there came to him the Pharisees, tempting him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, Father Lapide points this out. This is interesting. He says, They, the Pharisees, had no doubt from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, that this was allowable for any grave cause. So notice what the Pharisees are doing here. They are exaggerating the law of God so as to trip up Jesus. Father Lapide quotes the Bible again, and he went again beyond the Jordan into that place where John was baptizing first. Father Lapide points out this was Anon near to Salim. This place was supposed to recall to the minds of the crowds the testimony which John had given there about Christ, that he was the Messiah and truly the Son of God. This question about putting away one's wife seems to have been very controversial, problematic, and treacherous in the time of Christ, just as it is now. So it's kind of funny that Father Lapide says that in the 16th century, but he is making this geographical connection to John the Baptist here. If you remember, John the Baptist was executed for holding to the indissolubility of marriage. The marriage is between one man and one woman. Therefore, continues Father Lapide, the Pharisees proposed it to him, that is Christ, that they might test him and find an occasion for carping at him. For if Christ, now catch this, this is, they're trying to put him between a rock and a hard place. Father Lapide points out, if Christ should say it's not lawful to put away a wife, he would incur the hatred of many rich and carnal men who made a practice of divorce. But if, on the other hand, Christ should assert that divorce is lawful, then they were ready to insinuate that his doctrine was imperfect and carnal. So see, the Pharisees either want him to have the rich people mad at him or to have the pious people mad at him. Verse 4, And Christ answering said to them, Have ye not read that he who made man from the beginning made them male and female? Now this is kind of funny considering all the stuff in the news. Father Lapide writes, some think from this passage that Adam was created a hermaphrodite and he had in himself both sexes so as to be male and female at the same time. Apparently this was an argument in the 16th century, not just the 21st century. And Father Lapide simply brushes it away by saying, but away with such puerilities, which is childish, childish behavior. Okay, then Father Lapide continues, um, and notice he's bringing us back to how God created marriage, not, not how things have turned out since the fall. Remember, Jesus is God. And so his plan for marriage actually comes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 before the fall in Genesis 3. 
So this is why Father Lapide writes, again from the fact that of one Adam, two persons were made, namely Adam and Eve, and because Eve was formed from Adam, it is shown that monogamy is right, that a wife ought not to be separated from her husband. First Plato, and he's quoting the, the ancient pagan Plato, First Plato says, for one man and one woman, as it were, from two imperfect parts, one perfect man is formed. Now take that somewhat poetically, but St. Augustine um, also holds that uh, marriage of one man and one woman must be perpetual and indissoluble, so that it can only be dissolved by death. Actually, this is Christ's teaching. Just as in a man, the soul or head can only be separated from the body by death. Plato, and from him St. Basil, adds that this is why a man seeks a wife, as it were, apart, cut off from himself, and as a magnet attracts iron, so does a woman a man. So it's a little bit of what we hear in the Theology of the Body, the Wednesday sessions of Pope John Paul II, uh, that um, in some sense man and woman are incomplete without the other. So that's not just Pope John Paul II, this goes back to St. Basil and in some sense even Plato. Verse 5, and he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Um, Father Lapide points out that this word cleave in Greek, proskolutheisetai, is to be glued to, to adhere to. That is, man shall adhere closely and undividedly to his wife. And then we have this famous line, and the two shall be one flesh. Father Lapide points out the Greek, it's Ace sarkamian. And that's really interesting because ace means into, in other words, into one flesh. Father Lapidi points out this is commonly expounded of corporeal union, but it is better to take it more simply and purely as a Hebraism, signifying that husband and wife are one flesh, one human being, one civil person. From this comes the moral interpretation that a man and his wife ought so to love one another as the Heart and soul love the body to which they belong, and the body loves them. See Ephesians 5.28. He also quotes St. Thomas saying, summarizing him as, Husband and wife are one flesh because they generate the same son, who is the one common flesh of both parents. And by generate the same son, they just mean the same child. It could be a boy or a girl. Um, but that, that is tied to the fact they're one flesh. And then verse 6. Therefore, now they are not two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let no man put asunder. To put asunder means to separate, to cut apart. And the, uh, the Greek there is to be yoked together, you know, like a yoke that connects two oxen. Father Lapide says there is a twofold argument here by which Christ proves that a man ought not to put away his wife. First, because it's contrary to nature for a man to put away his wife, just as it is contrary to nature that one flesh and one man should be divided into two. Therefore, it not, must not be done. And secondly, this divorce is contrary to the ordinance of God. If therefore it be done, it is done impiously, because what God hath joined together is torn asunder. Who dares to do rashly what God has forbidden? Who dares to divide what God has united? Who dares to tear apart the work of God the Creator, one man, or to mutilate its flesh and cut off its member? I had a couple of friends, they were a married couple, and the, uh, the wife worked in the tribunal, pretty much just stamping letters that went out for annulments, and I was over at their house for dinner one night, and the, the dad's a real joker. And I was like, so what What do you do in the tribunal? And he goes, oh, she puts asunder what God has put together. And we all had a laugh, but that's essentially, 
there's a lot of truth to that joke. Father Lapide says, as though marriages improperly and inconsiderately entered into without God's instigation might be set aside. For nature, and then now he talks about how bad this is in the animal world. Of course, Father Lapide is the farthest thing from an evolutionary biologist, but he does point out um, why there are certain beasts, as he called, calls them in the animal world, that don't have to be monogamous, where he does give us a biologic, of course, there's tons of theological reasons, first being heaven and hell, why man and woman should stay together. But he gives a, a little biological reason why it's so important to stay together. He says, For nature requires this, that offspring may continuously be propagated by matrimony and be advantageously brought up by both parents. This upbringing is, in the human race, a work of difficulty and of long continuance, lasting up to the 20th year of a child's age and sometimes longer. It is otherwise with beasts which in a few months or weeks come to adolescence so that they do not require a father or mother's care. Therefore, their marriage is then dissolved. Because human nature ordinarily requires this so that the children can be brought up suitably by both parents, for the rearing of human children is difficult and long. Since meanwhile, more and more children are born who likewise must be raised by the couple. The third reason is an allegorical one because marriage is a type and figure of the indissoluble union of the divine word with our flesh. And through it, Christ with the church, see Ephesians 5.32. Verse 7, they say to him, Why then did Moses command to give a bill of divorce and to put away? Now notice the Pharisees said, objecting to Christ, Why then did Moses command? But notice that Christ corrects them. This was only permitted. Moses only permitted this law of divorce. Now notice this. This is super important. Because of the hardness of their hearts, but it was not so from the beginning. See, God made man and woman. He gave them one commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Later, we have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are actually on everyone's heart, even before you're a Jew or a Christian. When the Jews went to what we would one day, one day known as the Holy Land, because they intermingled and worshipped the pagan gods, God had to give a secondary law. We call that the 613 meets vote. And you can even find in Ezekiel 20, 25. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. That's Ezekiel 20, 25. We've talked about this before. Now, of course, God would never give a bad law. But the original law was just to be fruitful and multiply. And then after the fall, the Jews had the command to evangelize all the nations. But then when they even failed in that, God had to put them in essentially time out. That's why we have these 613 mitzvot, these little laws that you see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. These were not the original plan of God. This is why the New Testament got rid of those, but didn't get rid of the Ten Commandments. That's so important. The 613 mitzvot are concessionary law. That means plan B. That means that wasn't originally God's plan. So some of the things we have in the Old Testament that Moses allows was not the original plan for God or of God for man. And divorce is exactly one of these things that Moses, we're going to hear the reason in a minute, and well, just a little spoiler alert, the reason is because Moses thought the Jews were going to kill their wives uh, just because they already knew that only death could separate them from their wives. So it was actually out of the hardness of their heart that Moses gives them this plan B of marriage, this concessionary law, but from the beginning, it was not so. Christ said to them in verse 8, Because Moses, by reason of the hardness of your hearts, has permitted this to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
Father Lapide says, Moses allowed you to put away your wives when you hated them, lest if you could not divorce them, you should kill them. For so great was the hardness and carnality of your hearts that you would rather put them to death than be without the pleasure of a new and desired marriage. Because from the beginning of the world, God instituted and made sacred the inviolable and indissoluble marriage between Adam and Eve, therefore it was so from the beginning of the natural order instituted by God. When man's nature had fallen by sin, man changed and corrupted this institution of God and introduced divorce and polygamy. So essentially, Christian marriage is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who invented marriage, who made man and woman, bringing all of humanity back to the garden when you don't get to divorce, when you don't get to play games, when you don't get to go to a tribunal and get um, papers for annulments, because Christian marriage is supposed to be as glorious as Adam and Eve in the garden. doesn't mean that there's not suffering. Um, there's redemptive suffering in marriage. People make each other suffer, but the bond is never to be broken, just as Adam and Eve. And so Christ, who is God, is establishing marriage. And this is why this is so challenging to, to the listeners, is because He's not allowing Christians to have this concessionary law. Mm, that should be a real conviction to the tribunals of the United States. Anyway, Father Lapide says, Christ said this upon two occasions. One, publicly in this place to the Jews and the Pharisees, when he here promulgated his new law, by which he revoked the power of giving a bill of divorce and brought back marriage to its primeval institution and indissolubility. See what I'm saying here? Christ brings this back. He says, no more giving a bill of divorce for Christians. Why? Because he, he's God, he brought back marriage to its primeval institution and indissolubility. That is, Adam and Eve in the garden. Shortly afterwards, he repeated the words in private to his disciples in Mark 10.10. 10, as if to say, I enact, and as the new lawgiver of the new law and reformer of the old, I ordain and bring back marriage to its original restitude, rectitude and steadfastness. And I declare that whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another shall be accounted and shall be, in fact, an adulterer. So no wonder this shocked the Pharisees who were kind of living on the loopholes of the law at the time. Good thing that hasn't happened uh, since then, huh? People living on loopholes of the law. And then we hear that heretics were of the opinion that marriage was dissolved by adultery, not only in reference to the bed, quod thorum, but also in reference to the bond, quote, vinculum, so that under such circumstances it was permissible to take another wife and contract another marriage. However, Augustine and the Fathers, this is just Father Lapide summarizing, teach that even if a man should only divorce a chaste and innocent wife without marrying another, he commits adultery, both because, one, he breaks the law of marriage and violates the rights of his wife, which is a sort of adultery, for adultery means a vice directly opposed to matrimony, such as putting away a guiltless wife, and also because that line, he committeth adultery, that is, he makes her commit adultery, as Christ explained in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Now, this is really important. Therefore, he who puts away his wife, says Father Lapide, on account of fornication and marries another, does not indeed commit adultery by divorcing the adulteress, but does so by marrying another. So what Father Lapide is taking from Christ and the church fathers is the the leaving the wife part, if she was unfaithful, you're not committing adultery by leaving her. You're committing adultery by marrying another. Now, we just heard it's a little bit different if your spouse, and this goes either way, man or woman, if your spouse was innocent, you just want to leave, um, then you do commit adultery just by leaving. But if there was unfaithfulness, this, this explains this, um, the one exception we heard in Matthew 19.9, 
Again, let me read you Father Lapide. Therefore, he who puts away away his wife on account of fornication, and this would be the other direction to women and men, therefore he who puts away his wife on account of fornication and marries another, does not commit adultery by divorcing the adulteress, but does commit adultery by marrying another. I say too, Christ here concedes divorce to a man on account of the fornication of his wife, that is in reference to the bed, but not the dissolution of the marriage, such that he would be allowed to marry another. Christ therefore replies to both questions, and as it seems by means of two propositions. One, whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication commits adultery. And two, whosoever shall marry another commits adultery. For together with the bill of divorce, he abolishes polygamy or having more than one wife at once, which had hitherto been allowed. The same thing is proved too by what proceeds when Christ proved absolutely from the very nature and original institution of matrimony, which fornication does not annul, that matrimony is altogether indissoluble. Let me read that again. The same thing is proved too by what precedes when Christ proved absolutely from the very nature and original institution of matrimony, which fornication does not annul, that matrimony is altogether indissoluble. And then St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Bede, and St. Innocent, and Pope Innocent, St. Augustine, and Pope Innocent I, severely reproach certain bishops of their time for conceding with Tertullian second marriages to wives on account of the adultery of their husbands, saying that it is lawful for the innocent spouse to put away an adulterous partner and to marry another. So again, that was a list of saints that are very much against that opinion. Why, against, why are they against that opinion? Because that's exactly what Christ stood up to against the Pharisees and all of their silly loopholes on marriage. So Christ is very serious about the indissolubility of marriage. And this is why, even though there are some exceptions, the magisterium, guided by the Holy Ghost, has allowed uh, for the next thousand years of Christianity. Um, this is why I would just summarize this, and I do have this in the show notes. Christ asserted to the apostles who would spread Catholic marriage, and also to the Pharisees looking for loopholes on remarriage, that in certain circumstances, a married person could carefully discern departure from one spouse when the other was provably guilty of unfaithfulness, and the early church added physical and psychological safety or salvation to this, then you may discern departure from your, sp- from your spouse, but you still can't remarry. But then the reason I would encourage you to, look, to read the book Primal Loss by Layla Miller shows that even if you have a reason to take off, the kids are really going to suffer if you do. Um, everyone wants to go to the most extreme case of you know battered wives, women who are beat up and stuff. Yeah, the church has always allowed people, one of the spouses who's in a psychological or physical uh, situation that's dangerous to take off for a time or even more than a time. But one of the things that Layla Miller really helped me see is even when we're looking at cases when a modern tribunal, which is sort of the uh, annulment arm, well, it does more than that, but it's become the annulment arm of the chancery, which is the central nervous system of a diocese, even in the cases when they will hand out a declaration of nullity, retroactively declaring that putative bond to be null, um, children suffer. And if you read that book, Primal Loss by Layla Miller, you will see the adult survivors' descriptions of what it was like growing up um, with divorced families, numerous families all around them, and how that affected their adult lives. So even though we looked at a couple loopholes, not loopholes, times when one can leave because uh, one can leave the bed but never the bond, 
what we really also have to consider is the great destruction that divorce or separation, annulment, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to call it, leaves the children in. Um, so even though we heard a couple exceptions, the main goal is only marry someone that you are sure you're going to be able to live a life with and raise children with. Please say an Our Father for me at benedictio Dei omnipotentis. Patris et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.